0: Hello, and welcome to Royale Without Cheese, our bi-weekly podcast in which we discuss both the classic and the unknown of Hollywood and foreign cinema from the then and now. We are your hosts, me, Leonardo Miranda, Miguel Aido. Hi there. Hey there. And Tomás Ferreira.
1: Hello, comrades. I hope you're having a
0: fine, good day. We sure are. We are three filmmakers in an informal dialogue with a film review each episode. As part of our Cold Mamushka, reviews in both English and Portuguese will be available for different listeners. Today's episode will be in English, and we'll be having a go at Eisenstein's grandiose duology, Ivan the Terrible. Portuguese speakers can head to the Portuguese labeled content section. Don't forget to subscribe, share the episode, or simply give us a like. That's how our podcast can grow ever more groovy. Now sit back, enjoy the show. Enjoy.
2: For me, there was a huge difference between the first part and the second part. The second part for me was much better. I mean, it's like on every aspect, the the way it really varies in terms of camera dynamics with more pans, um, the the use of color um, against the the black and whites. um, It was one of the first
1: color films, you know,
0: in Soviet
2: yeah ah, okay no i didn't know interesting yeah although it's not completely color but yeah and just generally i mean the plot yeah, i think is more interesting the um i don't think he, he he exaggerates so much on the close-ups that he did in the first part <laughs> uh which become very theatrical um i think it's is more um, a little how do you restrained. say yeah restrained uh in the second part um yeah just I mean, generally that's it yeah i think the
0: film initially and i in retrospect i think the first part is better than i realized but i have to re-watch it eventually but initially you kind of have to adjust to the style of the film very theatrical and exaggerated and the way he cuts too which is also it's always something with eisenstein that's takes a bit of adjustment because it's very frenetic and he doesn't follow sometimes he doesn't follow the quote-unquote rules of cutting like if he wants to go closer to a character sometimes he doesn't push in he just cuts to like progressively closer images of that character it creates the you know the sensation of movement with still images let's say which is interesting but it's not something you're used to seeing that much And he always does that in his silent films especially you see it a lot so initially it was a bit like a fish out of water like oh my god this is a lot to take in and then because formally the film is so challenging then it's also hard to understand the narrative for me a bit and so it's a lot of adjusting but by the second part i was already more adjusted to it. And because of also what Miguel said, it's a bit more restrained. And um, it's it's restrained both formally, but also in terms of the narrative. I think it encapsulates less time. Whereas the first part, it seems like we go over years. I'm not sure. Yeah, it does
1: feel like that. The first part is a little bit elliptical. It has that sense of like, he gets a coronation, but then I also get the sense it has that sense because he grows a beard. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he the character kind of evolves in his own clothes, and not only he grows a beard; that beard transforms into a grayer beard by the end of the of the film. You know, it's almost like you really go over years with this character. It's very summed up. But the second part, I agree with you that is much much more interesting. Although I really like the part one because I think he's more ambiguous in the way he thinks. The czar, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, I think he's much. He becomes much more of a loner you know uh, trapped in his isolation with no friends um by his side or trying to seek someone to fight the boyars which are really a kind of aristocracy in the in eastern european countries um that he's or seeking Portuguese to crush. speakers уж boyards and uh, that he's seeking to crush to unify russia and uh, i think it's much more ambiguous about if he's a good guy or a bad guy i think the first parter Uh, It's much more, you know, kind of a a nationalistic, a nationalist film that uplifts him, has the savior of Russia that comes back to Moscow to take in the reins and defeats his opponents. While on the the second one, when he commits the crime of killing his own cousin uh, that is connected to his aunt, who is like one of the great conspirers against him uh, about taking his throne, you don't quite know who to root for because the aunt has done something terrible against him by killing his wife, but also he has just killed a cousin that surf has a, you know, at, at a certain point uh he entraps in this kind of role play where he puts him on with his own clothes, his kazar like regal clothes. Yeah. It's a very cool thing. I and it's a wonderful, I mean, by God, it's a wonderful thing. Just to speak about the visuals. I mean, first of or foremost, foremost, um, I think he's sort of, to close this point, I think he's much more of a troubled man in the in the in the in the second part. Also, because he does something which I've never seen him do, which is flashbacks. And you go into the interiority of the character, seeing the Ivan's mother dying at the hands of the boyards, how he grows up, has a kind of a he's the Duke of Moscow, a promised Czar to be, but the boyards still reign for him, and so there's that tension as he grows up towards these people who kill his mother and who are still with him on the reins of the country. And eventually he takes in the reins. he becomes the king, the one and only, and he's trying to clean them all. And so you understand more of his backstory and you sympathize with him more. But also we start to see the worst in him, you know, in terms of how maniacal he is, uh, how arrogant he is, how gruesome he is, how much of a, terrible a carnage, obsessed, terrible? terrible he is because he even says it like to the people who are the most <laughs> loyal to him to the ones who are most loyal to him i think the i think he has a couple of guys amongst his uh, court who come from it's a, it's a lower kind of aristocracy i think uh who are his his best servants and who even say this to him at at the party but he's like you're not my you know, you're not my family, you're not my nothing, you're not my brothers, you are my slaves. And I thought, whoa, my God. <laughs> no. You know, for a guy who is alone and who complains about being alone and not having anyone and who really values his family, but his family is the one betraying him in the first place, to be saying to these guys who actually pledge their allegiance to him and be kind of shitting in their face is is just ridiculous and horrible so it's really there's a dichotomy about what you feel about him but in visual terms I mean Sergei Eisenstein I think just to say this I want to say this Sergei Eisenstein is a crazy man (laughs) he is a pillar of cinema along with T.W. Griffith Charlie Chaplin okay and Lumiere you know uh, He's at the forefront of all of these big pillars of cinema at the, at the start of the art form. And, you know, if you see uh, film form, his book about montage and the dialectics of montage, the man is something of a wonder. It's a very good, it's a genius and a very difficult book to read. I remember some ex- excerpts and he has, you know, described five forms of montage, which is not quite editing, but it's an editing in which shots who he perceives as cells within the editing, within the montage, uh, gain meaning through the collision. That's why he, he doesn't believe in the linkage, or he believes in the linkage between a shot and another has to has continuity editing, but that's not his favorite style of editing, which he would call rhythmic montage. That uh, his favorite is like, yes, the Podovkin is the one who defends the, the linkage, he defends the collision when there is some kind of a formation of a, a, synthetic, a synthetic meaning from the collision of two ideas. And he has these kind of five forms of montage, which are mat- metric montage when you have, and the way he describes these different styles of montage, magic montage, overtonal montage, tonal montage, intellectual montage, it's, it, it's so mathematical because his parents his father was an engineer and he was supposed to be an engineer, but he wasn't. I think he kind of brings that into his, into his thinking, the art form. It's very mathematical. It's a very hard book to read. I think, um, And so whenever you know it's like it's you go you delve into that book and it really feels like uh what is this guy talking about (laughs) you know it's very you know it's it's amazing trying to decodify how he thinks cinema because he talks in in terms of conflict of scales of masses of volumes within the conflict within a frame and the conflict from a frame to another frame and it's like, what the hell, man? The formula length of the measurement. of it. He uses these terms that are just mesmerizing. I don't have the book on paperback, but I would like to have it one day to really read it fully because it's very interesting.
0: My favorite part of that book, of the essays I read, and yeah. I don't fully understand him. He has ideas that are just beyond me sometimes, but it's a matter of rereading and rereading. Mm-hmm. And I think the best part, I loved parts where he picks like excerpts of his films like Potemkin and he, you know, he goes through his process almost. It's still in a difficult manner to understand, but you see the images and you understand what he's trying to achieve. He doesn't really, uh, it's it's like he makes jumps in,
1: in his rational thought. He doesn't really explain to you what everything means. He doesn't say, oh, what is it? He talks about things like conflict of planes conflict of lines, he really is really obsessed about lines in cinematography, really. Um, and, you know, uh, conflict of colors, conflict of lighting, conflict, you can kind of sort of understand what he's going for, but still, you would appreciate, okay, conflict of scales, dot, dot, what does this mean? But he doesn't do that, he does, he just kind of, um, no goes through the motions of his rational thought, and it's kind of difficult to understand. But uh, <clears throat> it's very amazing. But it's to say that all that kind of dialectics and montage that he has on that book uh, is respected, is respecting his earlier films like Strike and October and Potemkin. And I've seen Potemkin and October and where his art form and his editing is much more experimental. And he's yes yeah, struggling with the concepts of what is what is the image telling you, what is the composition telling you, and how the clash between them. Uh, generates ideas. While in here, I think it was another era, we move on to the 19, actually 40s. this was a film released in 1944, and we are with Stalin. And Stalin is promoting a kind of propaganda in filmmaking that should be a lot, a lot clearer, both in content and form. So he was pressing for artists to really not be so avant-garde as in the beginning. Like in the 1950s, 1950s, 1920s, it was this boom of Artists in filmmaking, in theater, in music in Russia, where they were just set loose to really experiment as they wish. And the revolution was kind of liberating in terms of the art form to uh, express these ideas connected to the revolution in the most free of ways um, to agitate the populace while here. Uh, it was a lot, here, I mean, the 40s and with Stalin, it was a lot more to fulfill clearly and visibly the purpose of what they call the socialist realism <laughs> of the movement at the time, which really was a compromise with, a, a, more, a more fully compromise with the propaganda, so much so that this is a much more narrative film. Uh, and that comes with the sound as well. The story is very, by the book, you know, you see him ascending to the throne, you see them dealing with his little, um, enemies. And the, the, the editing itself is not as um, daring as his earlier films. But still, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful film, both part one and part two, I think. The way he uses lighting, the way he recurs mostly to close ups, you know, it's it's mostly close ups. And I love the aesthetic tableau vivant that he has in these films where the characters are linger on their poses and really make it's strenuous long caricature figures with their eyes sometimes even at the camp value because you have characters doing this with their eyes you know i'm the eye of Ivan the terrible i'm looking at you all you know and he even he even acts with his beard it's like oh, 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 show me my beard I mean, there's a moment where he,
0: he says i will be terrible and then he looks I at will the be terrible
1: <laughs> yeah 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 and it seems it's like he gives he's giving the middle finger to stalin somewhere some way i think like Okay, you want me to do this? Fine, I'll do this this way. <laughs> so it's much more expressionistic in style, like with the Germans, like the expressionist cinema of the Germans with the long shadows and the chiaroscuro play. I think he takes a lot from it. And he also comes from theater. You know, he has origins in the theater, uh, Eisenstein. So I think he was uh, a pupil of Meyerhold, which was a director in theater, in, theater, uh, in an avant-garde sort of work. Uh, who passed on to him what what they call this expressionistic style of theater that was very caricature-based and characters would do long faces and would really act fully, whatever emotions were in the dialogue to a point that was, you know, strenuous. And uh, I think that's also the appeal of it. Like if you give yourself to the acting, it's really interesting to see, especially because visually it's it is balanced with the kind of acting that you're presented with. You have these very close-ups of their faces, a lighting that is very unnatural coming from below. Like it's a low angle lighting, fully illuminating their faces, like such a way that kind of burns, you know, their faces uh, to the point that there's almost no information of the skin detail. And they just become kind of these monsters that fill up the screen. The screen. It's, it's really iconography filmmaking, as much as the paintings in orthodox monasteries, that show up in this film, or in the palaces that you see in the film, are kind of these very still, scary figures. Double Viva. I'm—I I have this thing since a kid that I'm very scared of. <laughs> I'm very scared of um, this film strikes me so much because in my dreams as a kid, I've always, whenever I go back in time <laughs> to like foreign, you know, old places, I see like I'm very scared of small doors, <laughs> small doors, <laughs> small doors, and like. Uh, this film, there's a lot of people going yeah, through small doors, and I'm them. like, oh. <laughs> they have to get hunched and pass through them. And there's almost a humility to them because the act of passing through a door is almost like bowing to God, and I find that very interesting. And So as a kid, whenever I dreamt of old palaces and everything, I would dream of palaces like this, these castles that feel like monasteries where the doors are very, very, very small. The ceiling is very, very small. And it's it, you are transporting to a whole other world. I don't know how you felt about that. I really like to, to know, but um, it's it, these are scary places to me, like to be, and you know, I just get fully immersed in. You don't get you don't get this kind of uh, architectural uh, design in Western Europe. You see, I think it's very uncommon to see that. It's much more akin to the Orthodox monasteries and um, palaces of Eastern Europe, which I find very interesting
0: i was reminded a bit of uh, othello the, the wells film also because of as the well, use me too, yeah, me too. because of the use of the because location itself in the lighting, and, the lighting. Yeah. and yeah and the, even the plot like the there's a lot of scheming and people whispering to each other and leaning in i feel like there's similarities between them i wonder if wells watched it at the time and was a little influenced as well i think the i think the terrible is a film that is going to grow on me more as I become even more familiar with Eisenstein. It's a film
1: that lingers on you as well. Like, you stop watching the film and you can't unsee it. Like, the images are engraved in your head. Absolutely. The Uh, the image of his... There's a moment where the wife dies. The beard. There's a moment when his wife dies. There's so many, like, orgasmic scenes in this for a (laughs) film lover.
0: Like, he cuts to a shot of her, like, light in her face and she just... empty eyes and drinking the cup is very striking. Yeah. Yeah. In the clash He's between the black and white, and the images. color when it cuts to color out of nowhere, I, it's yeah amazing. I love it. It's mesmerizing. Yeah, and the color looks and you have beautiful. those
1: kind of um, ripples of color of green and red in the like over the moving, image. I don't know breathing. how he does that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the process of coloring. It's it, because it's so infused with this red lighting. You feel like it's bathed in blood. You know. And it doesn't matter if it's kind of fake or, or what, whether or not the lighting is unnatural. It it really sells this uh, environment full of, this hostile environment uh, living in there. And um, I really love the scenes where you have these sort of monks in black robes. Like when the wife dies, there's this scene where these monks in black robes are surrounding her deathbed. And she's only made of pure light. You know, they're surrounding some kind of light that is coming... Out of you know the places where they are not in you know and it's just undescribable what he does with lighting and how he you know and also because you pass so much time with characters in close-ups whenever you go to wide shots of these big white churches and it's kind of sort of it's sort of amazing you know you're reminded of the colossal nature of the film and I love the, how he, how in the editing of the part two you have. Vladimir, his his cousin, who is being really a pawn of his mother, aunt to Ivan, to becoming the next czar, is like at a party with Ivan and um, is made to wear the regal robes of the czar because Ivan wants him to be used as a decoy to be killed by the supposed uh, killer who is after him, contracted by the, the mother, the, the aunt to kill the actual Ivan. Mm. And it's almost like Vladimir, the cousin, is already fearing his future, what is going to happen to him, and he, there's this uh, jump in the future, this flash forward, where you jump from color to black and white, and Vladimir, in color, is seeing himself in black and white, kind of running around in the palace, like, where am I going, where am I going, What is this happening, and he's, like, fearing being caught and being, you more like, you enter in this mental process where you're kind of seeing what's his fate to be, that he's going to be killed by uh, the killer that his own mother... Uh, hired to, to kill the real life and, and that's that was an ingenious moment in editing i find um i mean what do you think miguel any, any other notes you've been kind of
2: silent sorry <laughs> i mean you, you've said so much already um i did i did have a thought um when i was watching part two um which was this idea that you know, when did audiences become so plot-thirsty? Um, you know, you see these old films and you... I don't know, there's such a huge difference plot-wise between what films used to do and what films do now. Um, it, it strikes me as... as um, You know, it, it's really impressive how much we, we as audiences and filmmakers as well have, have evolved together you know, in this direction of films really becoming um, much more complex narratively and necessarily because we need to innovate and try different things and experiment as well. Um, but in doing that, it's it's incredible how, how much um, films are so hard to get sometimes uh, in modern times. Um, but you look back at these films, and even though plot wise it's less uh complex, formally they are much less inviting, and so they are yeah they have challenges at another level um and I think the main difficulties in understanding this film come from this um yeah, from the formal aspect of being something which is so um uh, i wouldn't say out of date but uh so far away from us. Uh, in terms of time that uh, yeah, we just need to rethink how we we look at films uh, from this time to really understand the plot. Um, We have to go through another hurdle, uh, I think. So yeah, it's like compensation, you know, you you have narratively simpler films, but you go back to a time where formerly things were different and so you have to restructure your brain.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Although here, like Eisenstein is a bit of an outlier since like his theories and what he wanted to achieve with editing like it did not become the norm like let's say that influence you have films today that still rob from him of course of course but i mean that the model like if there was a battle between pudovkin and eisenstein i'd say that the pudovkin is the the more like Yes, accepted yes, yes, way yes. of doing things and has in a mainstream way of doing things yeah. Yeah. and eisenstein is more like oh let's take a bit of him for some things that we want to do here and there like and even as you were saying in this film is this going film a bit is very more, much linkage yeah more it's very much yeah, exactly content. he's even going to that model a little bit uh, because you know but it, it does put you wondering like if it would be possible to continue like his work into trying to achieve this new type of cinema that is more about creating meaning with the images as, and less about, you know, telling the story with the images, which like they are both valuable ways of doing things, but it's just so unique what uh, Eisenstein was doing with his silent films, especially, and you don't really see the continuation of it.
1: It's one he's one of those filmmakers that I really wish he would have lived longer, <laughs> you know, because I would like to see what he would have made in the sound era. You know, what more films would have would have would have done, you know. He he went I think he I don't know if he isolated himself, exiled himself in Mexico or not. I have the idea that he did. He did a film in Mexico called Que Viva Mexico. Um I think so, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I think after his last silent, which was the general line, he started going around Europe a little bit. He went to France, then to the US. There were people interested in making films with him there, but it, nothing really worked out. I guess it was just a matter of he couldn't find financing for his films until he went to Mexico, I'm not sure. And then he came back, he made Alexander Nevsky. Nevsky. And that was like a a Stalin-ordered film, and then he did this one as well.
1: And even part two, because he's much more ambiguous about how he treats Ivan the Terrible, it got banned and only got re-released in 1958, so after Stalin's death, which was in 1956. And part three never got to see Light of Day. I mean, there is an available, very low-quality bit of the film, as a piece of the film, available on youtube but i didn't dare to see it because it's it's such a disservice like it's so it's a court scene um but yeah sad uh and that was now coming to my mind again ivan is such a an interesting figure in the second part also for the wardrobe that he uses you know and the way he uses his cane at the beginning the way he's hunchback and the whole contortionist way of the way he the way characters f- fill up the screen with their performance and their bodily language i think it's even stronger than the dialogue itself you know i think it's part as much part of the um the mise-en-scène
2: and the dialogue yeah you were talking about his his beard and i mean the part 1 practically ends with With a shot, a profile shot of his beard. It's his beard over the Russian people. It's an amazing framing. It's a great frame, it's a great frame. There's also a scene where, um, as you were saying, um, where he gets closer and closer to the characters by cutting and and doing closer uh, close-ups. He does does this, I think, in one scene like four times where he he gets to the character like up to four times uh, and each close-up of those of those four, gets closer and closer. <laughs> it really takes it to to the next uh, to the next gear on that scene because you don't think it will get any closer, and then it keeps getting closer. It's really it's like fun to
0: watch. He cuts around people, so it's like he's swirling around the room, but he's not moving the camera. I think.
1: And also the way he uses close-ups, the way he it's also to do with the way that um, how he creates a, a spatial kind of conscience in your head without recurring to uh camera movements to kind of connect the people is really it has really to do that despite being still or held close ups to people's faces, he connects them to to the eye to the eye line a lot. And in these close-ups, you know, you have when Ivan gets to be coronated, he kind of looks at people that he's referring to as possible enemies. And he cuts back to them and to look back at him kind of almost at an angle. It's a weird thing to do in a close-up shot, where in the close-ups, either the character is looking straight at camera, talking with somebody else, or to the side, but never to the top. Nobody's looking like this <laughs> on a close-up. It's it's very unusual, at least today. So it becomes even more of a precious thing, or makes this film even more precious, part one and part two, that characters do this... Uh, how should I say this? The characters really take advantage of the whole wideness of the shot, the existence of the frame so much. Every little corner is taken advantage of uh, in terms of the geography uh, of it I find. And that's how he really compensates the fact that he is just merely using the cut and these uh,
2: close-ups. Yeah, there's also this great scene, I think it's in yeah, it's in part two. Um, with um Vladimir and his and his aunt really um uh, his aunt his mother um Ivan's aunt, and um they get so close to the to the camera, almost looking at it. It some it seems like a sketch. I don't know if you had this idea, um, like a comedy sketch from a SNL or something, where they really they're like the faces are meshed together. They were both next to each other, looking at looking ahead really. Uh, with a very close. Oh yeah, there
1: there is a moment when a character looks at camera.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Is I that think moment? it's his I mother, yeah. Uh, and I Vladimir's like, mother,
1: <laughs> oh,
2: Jesus Christ!"
0: Yeah, it's a bit campy, you know, at times. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, when yeah. when Ivan gets the robe out of the priest, you know, do you remember that scene when he's like discussing with the priest at the beginning? And he's like fighting the the robe, like, get in here, get in here. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> like,
0: it's very funny. There are times where Ivan, the way he moves, like very, uh, uses the robe yes. and he walks around. Or when he calls the the priest a liar, when he's reading the last rites uh, for Anas, the, his wife, I don't remember her name. He's, you liar <laughs> you got the way the the priest reacts like oh, huh. then he drops the <laughs> yes. the thing for the reading it's so yeah over the top at times
2: some of the reactions are pretty funny um and Ivan does this thing so often that the first thing he does in terms of his expression is is the eye like going to the back of his like the pupil going to the corner of his eye that's the first thing he does like he gets like <laughs> and then it yeah. and then he changes his face, yeah where where the camera is at an angle where it's the first thing you see it's his eye already changing the direction
1: um it's also you know it's I think the film also gains another texture, a very a much more personal texture that I was not going that I was not expecting from the enemies of Ivan when the mother of Vladimir starts singing to him, and this little story of a beaver who gets caught by knights or something like of the kind. And then she repeats that afterwards, and uh, it's quite of an hypnotic scene and scary scene as well. I mean, Ivan's aunt is quite a scary character. She she kind of looks like a man, but he isn't a man. He's a she's a woman. It's kind
0: of very rough face. Always with the black robe. Yeah. And the, the
1: giant figure.
0: The shapes that I, that he uses to when he frames her a lot of times are like very pointed, very pointy shapes. Like when she's sitting. The, her chair is like a, a triangle I did not expect her to start singing
1: did not expect her to start singing because she's such a, a rough character so evil in your head that when she starts singing kind of sweetly to her son to both encourage him at one point and then after to mourn him when he's dead it just feels so soft for, too soft for that character to to, to be uh, but uh, surprisingly uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's a bit surprising brings, you know? It's the mother's side. Yeah, it's the mother's side, the, I
0: guess. Showing more sympathy for the character.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the, in the case of Wardrobe, when I think it's very impressive that Sergei decides that when Vladimir is killed in that uh, kind of trickery game set up by, by Ivan, where the mother's killer ends up killing not Ivan, but her own son, Ivan just shows up in the middle of this crowd the, the, the crowd parts ways, and he's not in his like furry robe he looks like one of the monks it's almost like it's a trickery game and he's like he's it's like there are plenty of ivans you know like they're all decoys and i'm the, the real one like it's like in, he shows up in humility clothes like just simple black clothes but yet he's even scarier because of that i i find that's what i felt in that moment i don't know if you felt the same did you realize that he was, like, dressing differently at that moment? That, that made something for me. Yeah, I didn't because I was
0: like, who's that guy, initially? Who's <laughs> that like, guy? Was... Oh, okay. <laughs> the beard. Okay. Yeah. Like, man. I don't remember. I
1: don't remember what is the last shot of the film.
2: It's it's him sitting down. Uh, it's already in color and uh, it says something about, like, uh, let's make Russia great again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, in that, to follow that line, it does feel like these films are incomplete for me. Like there's something, there's like a final part to wrap it all up. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. feel like episodes, but not complete films, but I mean, they are complete films and they're incredible, but I feel like there's something missing. I mean, it makes sense. Like I think Eisenstein really wanted to make part three, he had discussions with Stalin to try to get it done just never came into fruition. Stalin
1: Stalin really really didn't like how he portrayed Ivan in the second part. And so the third part was like, no, no, no. And he was forced to make a speech saying that, you know, what he did in part one was false and a horrible job and all those things, you know, I shouldn't have made it (laughs) kind of apologetic, you know, you know, the, the so-called, you know, theater director that I mentioned, um, that. He was the pupil of God executed because he didn't, you know, conform to Stalin's way. So there you go.
0: <laughs> That's all for today. If you'd like to reach out and suggest a film for the next episode, you can find us on the podcast official Instagram and Facebook pages. Don't forget to subscribe, share the episode or simply give us a like. That's how the podcast can grow ever more groovy. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
2: I